This is called the high wire. Sound in space is the beat. Rhythm is the wire in space. The wire is the line. Line measures space. Line captures space. Line is the meter of the poetry. Line is the poetry of the matter. Space is the matter of poetry. Does poetry matter? That was Robert Baines reading some of his poem, High Wire, which he wrote about his intricate wire metalwork. This is Object, a podcast about design and contemporary craft in Australia. I'm your host, Lisa Carl, from the Australian Design Centre. In Series 1, you'll meet the master craftspeople we call living treasures. What makes them a living treasure? What has driven them to a lifetime love of their craft? Is it the material, the process, or both? How do they contribute and advocate for the arts? And what's their advice for makers who follow in their footsteps? Let's meet living treasure Robert Baines. In a career spanning five decades, Robert Baines is one of Australia's leading gold and silversmiths. Robert's work can be found in all major public galleries in Australia, as well as internationally in significant museums like the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York and the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. The Australian Design Centre made Robert Baines a living treasure, Master of Australian Craft in 2010. He makes intricately constructed jewellery and large-scale sculptural complex wire works that often combine gold and silver with plastic and powder-coated elements. In this episode, you'll hear about how Robert researched high classical Greek gold jewellery and remade it using those 2,000-year-old techniques, how colour takes on many meanings in his jewellery and how a chance meeting in a gallery changed everything. Robert Baines lives and works on Wurundjeri country in Melbourne. Hi, Robert. Hello, Lisa. My first question for you today for our conversation is, did making happen in your family when you were growing up? Well, when I was a young boy, my father, he was an antique upholsterer and French polisher. I have memories of his workshop at the back of his shop that he had built. He died when I was eight years old, so it's a limited experience, but I do remember him working on furniture frames and smells of gelatine, glues and French polishing stains. I'm interested in what then took you to art school. I went to Eltham High School, which was a very much an art and craft area in Victoria, in, in outer Melbourne. 
and uh, there was such an interest in in, uh, in craft metal work, and uh, the teachers there were, were very um, supportive and uh, very um, engaging with craft. They were either potters or metalsmiths, and there was a natural progression, I think, to go to the RMIT uh, art school because of the, the gold and silversmithing program. It was very well connected with the arts and crafts movement in the 1960s. It was really, I fell on my feet there. Uh, it was really a, a wonder of, of new discoveries and new possibilities. You never have a flippant conversation with, with Robert and uh, the work was always incredibly serious. Conversation with Robert was always very serious and I think he really took his work in a way in which very few jewellers do. John McPhee is an art historian and was the first curator of Australian decorative arts at the National Gallery of Australia. He didn't just follow fashion. In fact, he was always right outside fashion. He never fitted into the general run of the mill. Sometimes you look at the pieces of jewellery and you think no one could ever wear that. And then you see somebody putting it on and you realise that he's thought very carefully about the fact that they are wearable at the same time they might say all sorts of things about the society in which we live. And he was happy to make things which were objects, not jewellery that you could wear. He really thinks very deeply about his, his art and none of the work is easy, slick, fashionable or predictable. It is unexpected, and often very unexpected. It's tough, it's challenging, and it's thought-provoking. They're all qualities not often associated with jewellery and metalwork. What is it about metal, specifically gold and silver, that first drew you in? I don't think it was such an allure to the, um, the preciousness of the metal, but uh, it's really um, the historicity that sort of surrounds the use of that material, and in particular the, period, the Bronze Age gold smithing. The 3rd century BC, Greek gold, uh, really is the uh, culmination of a great deal of skill, sensibilities and sensitivities to the gold. There were such magnificent examples all the way going up into the um, first century AD. The quality has never been met after the history that follows. And it was an era of luxury goods, refinement, supreme beauty. And you can see this in the gold work. There is a fineness, and that fineness is in the wire work. Little gold balls that are joined to the surfaces, to the substrate. It's closest to pure gold, these pieces, they're 98%. They have materials that are so conducive to handmaking. The goldsmith has a piece of beaten gold sheet. So there's, there's flat stones, there's tongs or tweezers, and there's a blowpipe to charge the oxygen in the fire. So the goldsmith prepares the, the flat sheet, applies these granules or wires, and then paints it with this copper salt, copper carbonate. And this is really this ancient system of um, gold joining. This is not a modern system. Then the, the goldsmith would, with the tweezers, place it into a charged fire. He charges the fire with his blowpipe and then places it in and then removes it at a specific time. And so that's the process of 
of the ancients. <laughs> There's a saying that the goldsmiths uh, can put a week's work into a thimble. In 1992, I did a Australia Council Fellowship, and this was a big turning point away from uh, sheet substrate work uh, and, and building things with uh, linear construction using wire. And so I, I researched uh, the use of wire going way back from historically um, in the um, uh, Orientalizing period in the 7th century BC, 17th century European pieces, um, wondrous wire work. So I learnt more about wire and uh, that uh, Australia Council um, Fellowship grant gave me the time for one year to take just to explore the use of wire. So staying on wire, your more recent works are intricate linear wire work that's powder coated. Could you try and describe a piece with wire, there is that building. It's structural. There is uh, a network of wire. And within this network of wire is a straight wire and a crinkled wire. And this builds a surface. Now, these surfaces build structures. They could be cylinders. They could be cubes. They could be arches. They could be zigzags. And that's the crankle of the wire. These wire structures that are open, there are networks that meet, there are intersections where they meet and where they converge or where they leave each other. What's distinctive to me about Robert's work is the brilliant, skillful and unexpected ways in which he combines historic metalworking techniques with often provocative contemporary interventions of found objects or contemporary materials. Diane Sumulis is the curator and gallery coordinator at Glen Ira City Council Gallery in Melbourne, where in 2011 she curated a survey exhibition of Robert Bain's work. He often pushes boundaries of what jewellery can be and he plays with history, frequently referencing archaeology and material culture in his practice. So what I find extraordinary about his work is the way he challenges notions of authenticity and the way he merges the past with the present and draws inspiration from the historical context of jewellery as well as the concepts of copies and fakery. You make larger work but you also make wearable pieces. Is it important to you that your work is worn? Or do you make your work to be worn? Uh, sometimes it has to be worn. It's a fundamental that it's, it's, it's to be worn. It's a wearable jewellery piece. When the piece has to be worn, it has to be functional and uh, the, the pin has to work and all those sorts of things. But at other times, I like to play with the, the jewellery history and uh, make things a little bit larger than life. Over the years, I've sort of made larger pieces, larger wire vessels and wire tea sets, actually, which obviously didn't hold the tea or the, the milk <laughs> and uh, sugar. <laughs> but uh, these uh, larger-than-life pieces uh, have become very important. At the Gulbenkian Museum in Lisboa in Portugal, you would not believe this, but um, there are these wonderful large pieces by um, Lalique. Oh, Lalique. Mm. Mm-hmm. René Lalique. There's, there's a wonderful collection of René Lalique pieces at the Gulbenkian. 
but you would not believe it. There's about six or seven pieces. These pieces are larger than life, and this was the goldsmith working on another scale. Because they have such a dexterity and virtuosity in their making, it's still using the jewellery processes on a grand scale. Could you describe some of the work you make, in particular the subject-based work? Uh, The subject-based work? Well... They've always been subjects. The biggest subject was the was the red event. I was drawn to the colour of red, uh, not because of its colour, but by the condition of red. And uh, red does denote uh, emotion and um, such things as anger and affection, love, conveying of unconditional love. And so I made red pieces and there was the entropy of red and uh, the intervention of red into history, into historical locations and cultural locations that was making jewellery that was really uh, had an authenticity about it. It um, These were copies of uh, jewellery belonging to some sort of historical or cultural location. But uh, it became rather tiresome uh, making things in red, I have to say. It's, it's too overpowering for me. And so I was very uh, fortunate. I came across a, uh, a quote from Klaus Altenberg that he wrote in 1961, and he said that red is redder than green. It is meaner than yellow and bloodier than black. And so I, I, because I was interested in red as conveying conditions that resonate with human drama, that text by uh, Klaus Altenberg revealed to me I can still make things that are principally about red, but I can make uh, red with, with a yellow or red with uh, red and black, or bloodier than black. Red is bloodier than black. It's meaner than yellow. And I was making yellow pieces with these combinations. and uh, But these are all on linear structures. Then I sort of started to develop it further. I came up with the subject of um, pink, use of pink, how pink has conditions also. Pink is... Um, I've got a little text. I don't know if, you, if I can just say a few lines about this because I like to write text about my work. Pink is whiter than red. It is not red and it's not white. Maybe an arranged blending of the two. Extremities of red and white, it's the sweet space in between. Is it bleeding? It's a sweet bleeding. A caged pink is captured tenderness. And still pink is slow to anger. Pink is calming, warm and comforting. A target for unconditional love. Tenderness and kindness can escape its edge. A fragile pink can lose its sting. Anyway, it goes on and on. Uh, that's, that's about pink. I think that's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. It's great to be able to get different insights into colour. I think that's uh, extraordinary and um, and in- really interesting to see how it's, it's uh, featured so much in your work and the trajectory of your work over those years. Robert, day to day, what keeps you making? Uh, I'm almost 73, <laughs> and so I don't work like I used to work. The intensity of, of what I used to do, I've come to the point now where um, I really make one larger piece, work on one larger piece, and um, two smaller, complex pieces. And I don't have a big target of um, working for uh, uh, exhibitions and things so much. And I sort of work in the garden more now, and uh, I do other things. I have more of a balance in my life. But the, 
there's still that urge uh, to work, to engage and to make. And uh, that, that really cannot be stopped. The work always sits there. The studio is always there. And um, I, I really was intrigued by um, a, a title that my graduate students uh, some years ago came up for the title of their exhibition. And they called it The Beast Won't Sleep. The other thing where my life is now, I'm also really involved in the placing of my work more and more. I, I don't want to leave a lot of work uh, to my family to have to deal with. And um, so I'm sort of engaging more in, um, in institutional uh, collections and placing the work. So that's really important. The other thing is I have been doing commission work for families, two families in particular, over many decades, like going back into the 70s, 80s. And uh, they've all got older, and I, but I've had a wonderful sort of relationship with them. But I sort of really feel that that relationship I've had with the husband and the wife, that they've been buying pieces for each other and getting me to make them it's been a wonderful time and experience and quite a privilege and that's sort of closing also now that that relationship with with time and it's just happened this year my my one family uh the wife has passed away and uh, this is really a, a closure I, you know i i met this lady in um 1975 and uh, I've had this relationship for all this time and uh, it really made possible. We had a, a, an exhibition in Melbourne in the George's Gallery and on that day I was in charge like a curator of the collection and uh, this lady stepped in and we had a conversation for an hour about the work and I never thought you know, where this would develop. It's another one of those major unpredictables in my life. They gave me a freedom to make larger pieces using the knowledge that I was working on on other pieces at that time. And so I was able to extend these these sort of very specialised pieces. And so I think that's also coming to a close. Wonderful to have had that relationship, though, with, you know, people who who find your work so special and are able to... It's almost, it's almost collaborative, isn't it? It's a collaborative um, relationship with a, a collector. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost, you feel it's a privilege. You're not part of the family, obviously, but to be privileged in that sort of engagement with the interaction and relationship that they had for each other was a very nice thing. 50 years of making it. <laughs> he has the most extraordinary career. There are very few silversmiths, jewellers, goldsmiths, who have actually worked for that amount of time. Art historian and curator John McPhee. And he's very much admired as a teacher. He began teaching in 1980, uh, having graduated in 1969. And that means he's had hundreds of students to influence, to help. Um, he's always really concerned about his work, but also about the students. He was seriously dedicated to his students. It was very important for him to, to give students a great experience, and that I admire enormously.
Robert, I, I want to take you now to Living Treasures. You were made a Living Treasure in 2010. How was that experience for you? Uh, well, first of all, I'm a bit worried about the word pride. <laughs> Maybe this is my Christian upbringing. Um, but, um, okay, there's certainly wonderful things that have happened. I've seen winning prizes and awards as part of the professional practice. First of all, winning prizes, it's an acknowledgement of the work, but also the money. The money has always been really important um, and uh, a facilitator to continue. The awards were usually um, an opportunity to um, embark on some research or study. I, I know that when I, um, I was given the award to be the um, living treasure, uh, it gave a sort of a validation to the collectors and gave a prominence and it really gave me an opportunity to build a group of work that would tour then 13 venues around Australia. This work that I, I built for this event, the, the Living Treasure event, uh, really, I got into, really stuck into the authenticity uh, thing that I'd been working on at the Metropolitan and other places for so many years, since 1979, going to museums and looking at the work and talking to the people. And always there is this issue of authenticity, you know, is it is it um, authentic? Is it fake? Is it bogus? These questions. And so, you know, I built... For the Living Treasure exhibition, I built these sort of bogus stories. My pieces that I made were authentic to the material scientists. They would have been correct to the curator. They would be correct. But there was always this intervention of something else that was flawed. They were flawed pieces. All the time, this is jewellery knowledge. But the other thing is for the viewer, for the public, engaging in these pieces it's didactic. They're learning about jewellery history, being drawn in and then realising this is impossible. It's too fantastic. It can't be. And so it was a really a, a springboard for me to, to venture out. After that ex exhibition stopped touring, I took it to um, Europe, to the US in, in, a, in another form. And um, it just came back this year. And this was of the same work. Fantastic. It's great to, to hear that the Living Treasures propelled the opportunity for you to take the exhibition internationally as well. And it's been a decade then, over a decade that you've had it out on the road. So a Living Treasure, Robert, can be seen as a kind of role model for other makers. What's your advice for um, new makers? What insights can you share? Oh, well, I don't like giving advice. <laughs> um, I think people have to find their own feet on their own ground. I think uh, this is really important and to understand that, to know themselves. And so I think there has to be a commitment. Uh, there has to be a commitment of some sort and, and commitment to the subject. And it might not necessarily be the right subject at, that, at the time, but uh, just to commit and, and carry it out and to learn about it and consolidate uh, a knowledge, consolidate the, the ground that one stands on. And uh, so this is really um, becomes the base of knowledge uh, that you um, venture out with, with questions and uh, new, in new directions. A really important thing is to develop a personality. I fundamentally believe that people are unique. Each person is unique. 
and has a personality and person. And this is just uh, such a precious thing. And I think the more one knows about oneself, the more one can build on that knowledge. You know, it's like making ancient jewellery, you know, the opportunities that have opened from that. And I think that there's something in that intensity and engagement and commitment, practice, there always will be things that follow, opportunities and possibilities. Robert Baines, looking back on over 50 years of practice. The things I took away from my conversation with Robert was the value of relationships with collectors and how these can be very personal and nourishing in many ways, as well as being so important economically to enable artists to keep working. I was also intrigued by the criticality of colour to Robert's work and how he uses poetry to describe colour and form. And in the next and final episode of Season 1 of Object, you'll meet Brian Parks. It was done on a shoestring but looked pretty flash. It was Brian who came up with the idea to honour master craftspeople as living treasures. If you're enjoying Object, hit that subscribe button. You'll get all episodes and future seasons of Object Stories of Design and Craft delivered straight to your podcast app. Object is a podcast by the Australian Design Centre. The Gadigal people of the Eora Nation are the traditional custodians of this place we now call Sydney, where the Australian Design Centre is located and where this podcast was made. We'd like to thank the Australia Council for the Arts for funding support for Object. You can follow the Australian Design Centre on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Object is produced by Jane Curtis in collaboration with Lisa Carl and Alex Fiveash. Sound engineering by John Jacobs. Thank you for listening.